With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to a bonus edition of the Two-Footed Podcast, where we are lamenting a bygone era in the f- game of football. I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Scragg, author of A Tournament Frozen in Time, The Wonderful Randomness of the European Cup Winners' Cup. Stephen, how are you today? Oh, I'm very well, thanks. Thanks thanks for the invite. It was uh, very kind of you. Great, great to be on. Well, I'm delighted to have you on. I've been following your writing for years uh, through these football times and numerous other websites that you contribute to um and i was scrolling amazon one day and i saw your name and i was like oh i know that name and then i saw the book and i was like well, i have to have that so <laughs> let's jump in with the book where did the idea come from to write about the european cup winners cup the idea came from it was a throwaway remark by will sharp who is a uh, a fellow these football times senior writer senior senior management team uh who i'm with and we've done a podcast series on the on the golden days of, of european club football as was so we did one on the cup winners cup we did one on the the uefa cup or the ufa cup as uh as commentators used to call it so the, the old two-legged final era and the uh, and the European Cup as well. So before the Champions League era, when you had to be champions to 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 get in there, before the group stages all kicked in and all that type of stuff, when it really was a knife edge tournament. So we did these podcasts and uh, and they went down a storm. You know, people of, of of my age and my era who would essentially go out and buy a vinyl record. You know, the 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 vinyl revival era in a way. Uh, who just seem to love being reminded of things that have slipped the mind almost, things that they live through, but then kind of like they, they, they've lost in the mists of time. So anyway, we did this podcast and, and tongue-in-cheek, part tongue-in-cheek, Will had said uh, what you need to do is put on a, uh, a cup winner's cup book on your to-do list. And at the time I was talking to a publisher over a book of uh, a completely different topic, footballing topic, and... Um, and uh, just said, yeah, another idea on the drawing board to go along with this one is uh, one of the Cup Winners' Cup. And uh, it was coming up to 20 years since it had, had ended, and it, it just all seemed to fall into place. The the publisher, without seeing a word written, was like, yes, let's run with this, let's go for it. And uh, and before I knew it, they were asking me to, to come up with ideas for the front cover, and you know when, when they thought it would be ready for release. So the publisher is, of course, Pitch Publishing, who... I think are, are the outstanding uh, publisher for football-related content. I've I've had 
Uh, Lee Scott on, who's written a couple of books with them. I've had Tom Flight, who has his Burrow book. Uh, you're joking, aren't you? It's a brilliant read. I would highly recommend yes. Tom's book uh, yeah. and, and Lee's books, to be fair. Um, and I would also, just before we get into more on the book, I would also recommend that people take the time to regularly check these football times because the caliber of stuff that comes out on the website, on the audio side, and in particular in the magazine specials that you guys produce is absolutely second to none. And if a major media outlet had any smarts, they would hand you a blank check and say, right, lads, just run with it. Because it, genuinely, it's the finest written work covering football today. Oh, very kind of you. We, I, I class it as, as we're, we're, lab- we're still labour of love. You know, that's, yeah. that's what we lean on. You know, we, we're not... You know, we we never kind of like take ourselves too seriously, but what we tend to do is we, you know, the podcasts we produce, the magazines, the articles, the, the online series and, and, and everything we do, it tends to be proper labour of love territory. It's it's stuff that, primarily stuff that we want to read in a way that we'd like it to be written. You know, so many of us have, have basically got involved because, now, we've looked for online material about a certain topic or a subject, a player or a tournament or a game, found it's not there and thought, you know what, well, this needs writing about. So, you know, we it's it's just the way we've done it. And and in what I think I've been involved must be about six years now with, with mm. these football times. And, and it's still the same as it was back then. It's just a proper labour of love. And, um, and people seem to have have run along with us, you know, with a, and, uh, you know, they kindly buy the magazines and, uh, and invest time in us. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we just, uh, I think, I think it's a, one of those where we feel lucky, you know, we, we never take it for granted and we feel lucky that, that people seem to like what we do. Yeah. Well, you can absolutely count me among, among those who love, love the quality. I spoke with Omar a number of times over the years and he's, he's a, top top guy and what i always find is i find the caliber of writing is equal to anything that you find from any major publication but the the writers are more willing to be fans as well they they don't try and park the fact that first and foremost you guys are football fans who are writing yeah. about football you're not just writing about football you bring that fandom into what you write and like you say it is a labor of love and that does come across because of the quality of work that gets put out yeah it is you know we, we all support our you know various football teams you know there's a few liverpool fans amongst us omar's a liverpool fan you know with a couple of arsenal fans there you know everton and chelsea and and all sorts from wrexham to Southampton and, and you know Man United, you know we, we we're a big cross section of different you know football and tribes that come together. But what we class ourselves as well is is kind of like um, we're, we're just lovers of football as well. So mm. we're football supporters, yes, but we're we're football lovers. So you know when we come to doing a magazine on the team that you know we don't support, we always look for an angle on it that you know we, that we love or we respect. There'll be a certain player that ticks a box or there might be a certain era or, or whatever it is. So, you know, and then 
we, we just run with it. So even when it comes down to kind of like me writing, it was uh, the Arsenal magazine, for instance, I wrote about the Irish players. I wrote about that era of, of Pat Jennings, of, of Frank Stapleton, Liam Brady, David O'Leary. So all of these players that I, I admired, you know, and, and, and were omnipresent as I was becoming a word of football. Uh, I always used the, the phrase of being uh, at your most impressionable, you know, yes. that, that when football comes into your consciousness and you pay attention, you you start to focus on it. You know, I always knew football was there. I'm the youngest of three siblings, you know, my dad a Liverpool supporter. You know, I was taken along to my first game at a very young age. Football was just always omnipresent. And it must have been, in, I don't know, it must have been six or seven that I started to really kind of like sit up and take notice of it. That, you know, you'd look and find lead tables and stuff like that and, you know, it was always match to the day and the big match or the kickoff match in the northwest that we had, uh, and and you just kind of like any football was on the television because it was rare the games were on live. You know, we get the FA Cup final, the occasional European game, and international. You know, you, you used to thrive on radio commentaries, uh, highlights of games, and and any match that you got to in person. So football felt like an occasion. Uh, you know, now you without sound like an old man, it's everywhere. You can watch absolutely anything, whether that's mm. legally or illegally. You know, if I want to watch you know, a specific team in a specific league all season long, I can do that, you know, via via you know links or sports subscriptions. But, you know, back then, you know, you, it wasn't always there. And, and what was there, you used to just absorb it. So... You know, if Arsenal were playing Tottenham, it was a big thing. So you'd watch match of the day and there'd be Pat Jennings and there'd be, you know, Liam Brady with a turn of skill, you know, Ardiles and Veer in a Spurs shirt. So I had that appreciation for football, wider football, at a very, a very young age. And, uh, and for me, that's in a way what I will describe what I'm doing now is being a misspent youth finally coming good. <laughs> it's a good way to look at it, though. Um, the latest magazine from these football times covers Olympic Marseille, and it's brilliant. Um, unsurprisingly, pretty much every magazine that they've produced, and there's must be 20 of them by now, are all sold out. But you can get digital copies. They're four, year, four quid each. And genuinely, I, I would recommend going on, if you're a Liverpool fan, a Celtic fan, Barcelona, Roma, Dortmund, Ajax, Boca Juniors, AC Milan, whoever, these magazines are well worth your time. They're four, euro, four pounds, and they'll be delivered to you very, very quickly via email. Um, let's jump into the book, Stephen. So the Cup Winners' Cup was established in 1960 and ran till 1999. Now, your book uh, is a pretty definitive run-through of the ages, but a couple of things that really jump out to me, I've, I've only just scanned it at this point. I haven't actually, I haven't actually delved into it properly, but... Early in the book, you talk about the the Eastern influence of the Eastern Bloc teams that would have success. And if you look through the teams that won the tournament over the years, you've got the likes of Dynamo Kiev, who won it. You've got uh, Magdeburg from Eastern East Germany, Dynamo Tbilisi, and these are teams that now, if your if your club drew them in the Europa League, you'd be like, "Oh, it's a horrible trip. Like that's just a really long trip." But back then. It was a really dangerous trip because you could legitimately get turned over. Yeah, you, know, you were literally going behind the Iron Curtain, you know, the, the, the metaphorical Iron Curtain. Um, 
so yeah, there was always this, you know, air of of you know an unsettling air of danger to these trips, and and very few fans, if any at all, were allowed uh, to go along and watch as as travelling supporters. So the, there was this brilliant air of mystery, but within that, these teams were were just magical teams because this was an era in which you know the borders weren't free and these nations would hold on to their players, their best players. So the Soviet top league, for instance, and, and this was a league that would encompass Georgian teams, you know, Ukrainian teams. So, you know, it, it would almost be seen now, if you look at a list of teams from the, from the Soviet top league prior to 1990, you'd look at it and think that's, that's almost like a, an Eastern European super league. You're looking at all the Moscow clubs, you know, Dinamo Kiev, you know, Tbilisi are in there, uh, Ararat Yerevan, who were huge at the time. So these, these teams would, would shine and, and there would be something mystical about them because many of them were playing all white. And there used to be a phrase, a David Coleman phrase about, you know, a crack Eastern European outfit. And, and it was always to do with, uh, you know, the crispness of the passes, the speed of the players and how they'd hit you on the break. You know, you could dominate a game for 80 minutes and then bang, you'd, you know, you'd concede two goals in the blink of an eye. Uh, there's, there's a, you know, if you're, one for for losing yourself down rabbit holes in YouTube, for instance. Look up uh, West Ham's performance against uh, Dinamo Tbilisi in uh, in eighty one at Upton Park. You know uh, this. Although West Ham were a second division side, they were completely out of the you know out of their environment. Really, this was a team packed with internationals. They'd been relegated a few years before, but they'd won the cup from the second division in nineteen eighty. And that 80-81 season, they were running away with the second division. They, they'd been better than half of the first division sides at the time. On the way to promotion, they'd play us in the League Cup final and gave us a hard time in those two League Cup final games. But around about then, as these games were going on, Dino Tbilisi went to Upton Park and absolutely destroyed uh, West Ham. You know, and it's a work of art. You know, it's almost like a badge of honour to be taken apart by a team from from Eastern Europe. You know, it happened to Liverpool, the very same Dinamo Tbilisi side. They Liverpool played in the early exchange of the 79-80 European Cup. So Liverpool come away from the first leg at Anfield with a 2-1 win uh, that didn't represent how well Dinamo played. And then when they went to Tbilisi, they were, they were absolutely hammered 3-0. Uh, you know, proper football and lessons that, that were handed out by these teams. Liverpool had you know, more sober in European, you know, European encounters before coming good against the likes of Ferenc Valosh and Red Star Belgrade were another one. So these teams are, you know, properly evocative to me. Carl Zichian are another one. They were the team that Dino Tbilisi beat in the 81 Cup Winners Cup final. So, you know, there was this urn of mystery. You know, it wasn't an era where you got to see, you know, club football from, from different countries. And, you know, you, your vision of these teams would just flick it out of nowhere on sports night or midweek sports special and then that'd be it for another year or so or maybe the next round if they if they drew another British team and with that with those mystical teams that you know like you say you'd, you'd see them once or twice if you got the opportunity during the year and it might only be a highlight package there was these mystical creature uh, creatures I suppose but someone like <laughs> a, a Valerie Lobanovsky one of now regarded as like so far ahead of his time, a real innovator in management, a guy who basically took massive leaps forward in terms of fitness training, in terms of nutrition, in terms of sports science, and, and what he had created at Dinamo Kiev. This was 
where we got to see him, you know, in fleeting moments work absolute magic. He became more well known to those of us in Western Europe during his third time with uh, Dinamo Kiev when he had that team with Shevchenko and Rebrov and that. But this guy was creating masterpieces in the 70s and 80s in the Cup Winners' Cup and winning it twice. That's right. You know, they won it in, what, 75 against Ferenc Varos. Uh, won it in 86 against Atletico Madrid, um, which was like huge results. You know, this Oleg blocking, you know, along with Lobarewski, he spanned both of those games. And that second game in 86 against uh, Atletico, you know, you're looking at Belenov being part of that side. He won the Ballon d'Or. Uh, you know, part of that wonderful Soviet Union side that went to Mexico '86 and and to the final of the 1988 European Championship, and you know, for me, it's you know an absolute hipster's paradise when you come to look up at teams like that and, and to do the research and you know even the research, you know, the, the things that you know in your mind's eye, you, you write a book, you've still got to uh, be sure that your mind's eye has got it correctly. So you know, it, it was never a chore to go back and and watch these players and watch this these teams that he put together. But yeah, Lobanovsky was an absolute genius, you know, to to be able to put these sides together that were very much ahead of the time, you know, but to do it once in the 70s, to do it again in the 80s, and then in the 90s, you know, with, as mm. you say, that's Shevchenko and Rebrov side, that they got to the semifinals of the Champions League in the late 90s. Uh, you know, and, and and he took them so close, took the Soviet Union so close to glory at the 1988 European Championships. You know, he he was was more than an, an uh, you know a deserving uh, counterpoint to, to Renus Michels in the in the West. Yeah. yeah, exactly, and and influenced just as many people as Renus Michels did, um, but was obviously gets somewhat overlooked in mainstream because of. I suppose, a bit of bias against the Eastern Bloc, whatever that is, whether it's cultural, whether it's historic, whether it's, in some cases, just a little bit of ignorance. But in this competition, we saw a wonderful blend of of where the winners were going from, were coming from. Like, you had Italian teams. Like, in the first, say, four years, an Italian team, a Spanish team, an English team, a Portuguese team. And it just continued like that. It was very rare that we saw one country go back to back. City and Chelsea did it 79, uh, sorry, 70, 71. And then Barca and Valencia do it 78, 80. Oh, and Dortmund, Bayern in in uh, 66, 67. But aside from that, it is every year, it's a different country producing a team. And when you look at some of the teams that we would be more familiar with, like Glasgow Rangers winning the Cup Winners' Cup, um, Everton winning the Cup Winners' Cup, West Ham United winning the Cup Winners' Cup, teams that now are very unlikely to win European silverware were going out and doing so well in this competition that provided them with a real platform. And it was an opportunity for British clubs and whoever else to go in and not just play against these teams, but learn from these teams, pick up new little tactical innovations, pick up little nuances that these other teams were doing that maybe hadn't been thought of before in Britain. And I think this is where the early impact of the foreign revolution came in English football. It wasn't so much when the managers arrived with the money in the Premier League. I think if you trace it back, you look at the late 70s into the 80s, especially with how, like, with Liverpool dominating in Europe, they were bringing home what they were learning from the opposition teams. And and Bill Shankly spoke about it, how he watched Ajax play. And 
it changed how he thought about things. And it's clear yeah, to, it, to see that this was this was the case all over. It did. Brian Clough was another one. You know, um, they did. The, the coaches would go and see the teams. And, and there was something to be learned in being beaten in Europe. You know, it, it, it was never, you know, there was always a lesson behind it. Uh, so that Ajax game, for instance, where Liverpool lost 5-1 in Amsterdam, very sobering, but, you know, a lot of information, a lot of lessons were absorbed, uh, as they were in the games against Frank Varosh and Red Star Belgrade. Um, you know, legend has it that the Red Star Belgrade defeat was the one that you know persuaded Liverpool to change the central defensive pattern from traditional stopper, which Larry Lloyd was, um, and, and the hard man image of, of Tommy Smith, who you know was was actually a, an aesthetically uh, pleasing player. You know, if, if you want to see you know a, a proper example of Tommy Smith's football, then. No, look at the third goal in the 1974 FA Cup final and the part he plays in that. You know, Tommy Smith, although he's a hard man, a hard player, he could play the ball as well. You know, and within that, um, he, it was almost like his his partnership with Larry Lloyd brought Smith down to to Lloyd's level, if that makes sense, because Lloyd was just a traditional British lump of a stopper. So when Liverpool altered that centre back partnership and, and kind of like dropped Emlyn Hughes into the centre of defence and uh, partnered him with Phil Thompson and then mm. you had Tommy Smith move to right back suddenly this Liverpool defence and, and, and Lindsay who, who could play you know he could play at left back suddenly this this wasn't a Liverpool defence anymore that was simply there to stop the opposition it was there to instigate attacks as well so you know Liverpool's defence changed and altered it evolved on the back of of these chasing experiences in Europe, you know, and, and without those those lessons being learnt, then you know the the successes that came under Bob Paisley, uh, that first UEFA Cup that was won uh, for Liverpool under Bill Shankly, it, it wouldn't have come without those lessons, you know, and 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 it was a huge, huge, huge thing. It's like the you know, the successes of Nottingham Forest later in the European Cup, you know, they won't have won't have happened without those first exploratory runs that Clough had with um, Derby County. He took Derby County to the semi-finals of a, of a European Cup in uh, in '73, for instance. So yes, these these were lessons learned, but they were valuable lessons, and uh, they were they were channeled into something positive. It often bugs me that we hear about. You know, teams playing out from the back and how it's allegedly this modern thing but these eastern bloc teams were doing that in the 70s and you mentioned tommy smith and the idea of this hard man who could really play football again was something that was prominent in eastern europe where they, they just were a little bit harder than normal because of you know the day-to-day lives that they had the environments they grew up in the countries that they grew up in and those guys like they would kick the life out of you but they could get on the ball and they could play as well. And Tommy Smith and Graham Souness a little bit later, like they were the same. And and Graham Souness was often talked about as somebody that was very much a non-British style midfielder in that while he was legitimately one of the toughest players to ever play, he was an incredible ball player as well. And we'd seen that from a lot of these teams that we're talking about, the likes of Kiev, the likes of Slovan Bratislava, they had guys in the teams that yes, they were ferocious and you didn't want to mess with them, but on the ball, the things they could do, 
were a, a different nature to what we were used to seeing in England, where the hard men were just there to kick the ball and then give it three yards sideways. You know, they, they weren't there to, to create play. They were just there to win the ball back, be a, basically a David Batty, to give a more modern example, win it yes. sideways. Whereas these these guys from the East, Eastern Bloc and, and Central Europe, they could win the ball back and then they could ping the 40-yard pass. They could. Uh, what, what they had was this uh, kind of steely determination because, you know, playing football for a career was infinitely better than you know the the jobs that the the friends from school would be having. So you know they they were fighting for a better life within within what they were doing. So yeah, it it kind of engendered this spirit where there was a toughness, uh, you know, an inherent steel through through these players. But it was offset by a, a wonderful subtlety when they had the ball at the feet and you know and the chance to look up. I think. The wonderful thing about watching some of these games of the past, which I did in in uh, within research of the book, was that there is very rarely a wasted ball. Everything is tends to be accounted for. Um, you know, I, I can remember like you know England sides that still play percentage playing football. You know, well into the the late nineties and, and maybe into the the millennium. You know, I always I always cite the goal. Uh, the, the hand of God, you know, as as the the most British goal conceded ever, because in the build up to that, if you wind it back about sixty seconds before Peter Shelton's winding his hand, as if to say, "Come on, wake up! You're all just sleepwalking," and and it stems from a ball, a blind ball that Terry Butcher just plays long into the left hand channel uh, under no pressure whatsoever. There's there's no play around him for about thirty yards. And it's a completely needless ball. And it's just a percentage playing ball. And then the goal comes from that. Uh, but it's all short passing. And no matter what the manner of how the goal went over the line, uh, that that is a wonderful goal in the build-up to it. You know, if you had a chance, just go go and go and have a look at it. It is, you know, from from about a minute or a minute, minute and a half before they concede the goal. You know, you, you just watch it. And this is kind of like very British football of, of its era. You know, things are changing and teams play it a lot, a lot cleverer now. Uh, you know, uh, you get the feeling that, you know, the the advent of, of, of Klopp and Guardiola in the English game has, has changed, you know, the thought processes so much. You see how, you know, there was, there was much uh, mirth made of... Um, I think it was a, a lead two side conceding a goal by trying to play the ball out of defence the other day, mm. and it and it was quite an abomination. But this is the knock on effect: is the teams down the divisions uh, are no longer willing to play you know, the percentages and just play the the ball into dangerous areas and hope for the best, you know. But this was something that you know foreign teams were doing decades ago. And it's always the, one of the most standout things about watching games from the 70s, the 80s, even the 60s. If you watch like, like the likes of Ajax, you know, Michels and, uh, and Kovacs Ajax, uh, any of those games, some of the Italian greats, the passes are, are all relatively short. If there's a long pass, then it is a long pass. There's no such thing as a long ball. It's, it's, it's played with a target. If, if the mm. ball is played long, there is a defined target for that ball. It is never just played into an area where you know something might happen you know there, there's there's a run a run has been made and a player is is there to to, to target 
And uh, I think that's one of the most, uh, it's, it's, it, it was measured in a way that most British football wasn't. But the likes of Liverpool, you know, they they introduced it to their own game. And that, that serial domination, specifically between 72, 73 and 89, 90, that 18-season span, you know, Liverpool dominated that era not out of any great fortune, but because they implemented what they'd learned on the continent. Yeah, exactly. And that's how teams have always had an advantage. And, it, it, you know, in recent years, we've seen where the finances can be the big advantage. And if you look back to when Manchester United began their era of dominance, a large part of it was purely the financial side, that they were so far in advance on the commercial side and they grew their club exponentially over a couple of years and they just left everybody else behind. And while Arsenal came close a couple of times with Wenger, and obviously they did win a couple of titles and they challenged United, they never really overtook United. They never even really got to United's consistent level of like of domination Arsenal were doing it by advancements on the pitch United were making advancements on the pitch and off the pitch and a lot of that comes from again from what we've seen before is in the Eastern Bloc the clubs like Dinamo Kiev would have great wealth behind them CSKA Moscow had wealth behind them Spartak Moscow had wealth behind them and these clubs could afford to cherry pick the best players cherry pick the best manager and then develop a playing style that we weren't used to seeing in England. We didn't have that same sort of mentality of like of making the advancements. It was more, this is what football is and this is how we play it. Oh, they're doing something else. Oh yeah, but this is what we do. Yeah, completely. You know, I think Manchester United's period of dominance was, as you say, that that little bit different to Liverpool's. You know, certain similarities, but um, you know, even Alex Ferguson, you know, would would often state that you know what was was missing was that domination of Europe that mm. Liverpool had. Had. Um, so yes, they they had uh, huge financial advantages, and certainly around the time when they were signing, you know, massive amounts of money. What was seen massive amounts of money at the time for Van Nistelrooy, for Varane, and uh, Yap Stam, and this was like consistent massive spending that was far and away above anyone else's, uh, you know, experiences of English football at the time. Uh, so come a time that it levelled off, and you know, certainly from from the Abramovich era. Uh, where that level playing field or that tilted playing field started to level at least for for a small number of clubs, uh, it's it suddenly changed. So yes, they he, he started to to rethink his his football and and how he did it. Uh, you know, the introduction of the likes of Beckham and Scholes kind of changed that somewhat. Um, you know, he, there was a, I think, a knowledge that they couldn't just buy the success anymore, or to buy the best players to to help facilitate the success. Um, you know, the, there was a deeper thinking towards, I'd say, kind of like the, I don't know, two thousand and late two thousands into maybe, but yeah, the, the, those kind of years where they, they they played Barcelona in a couple of back to back, not back to back, but close back to back. Champions League finals, for instance, you know that was a different Manchester United that mirrored more the Liverpool, certainly of the continental side of it. But by then, they're being challenged domestically on a on a, a more 
wide-scale basis. Then along came the riches of Manchester City. So, you know, you, you can't have that success anymore. You can't buy that success. Even Manchester City are finding it difficult. You know, they've just had four years of Guardiola, for instance, and, you know, there's no Champions League to show. There is only two out of the four Premier League titles that he could have won. Mm. He's won. Uh, only, sounds daft to say that, but, you know... Yes, there's been kind of like you know the the FA Cup successes and the League Cup successes, but we're talking about an era now in which Kenny Dalglish was sacked for reaching two cup finals uh, eight years ago. You know that kind of broke the back of uh, you know how a domestic cup will sustain a manager and and how it's seen as success. So, well, that's the thing so, you can look uh, at Wenger's last years at Arsenal, and they were roundly deemed as failure by large portions of the Arsenal fans. But they were finishing fourth and winning FA Cups, and that wasn't enough. And a lot of that, I think, does come down to a a very weird thing that's developed over the last couple of years, which is this sense of entitlement among football fans, where we've seen Chelsea fans praise Frank Lampard for saving a dying club. This is a club that finished fourth, sorry, finished third and won the uh, Europa League the season before Lampard was appointed. We've seen Arsenal fans say this summer that anything shy of top four isn't good enough. They're not going to accept that. When, in truth, they are a long way shy of top four. They were eighth last season. They're in a rebuild. They've got a new manager. They're building a young squad. The same thing at Manchester United, where no matter what they do this summer, not signing Jadon Sancho is going to be seen as a disaster. Even if they sign three other world-class players, the fans will be up in arms about Sancho. We've seen it among Liverpool fans for you know a couple of different times. And as you say, with, with City, winning two league titles, especially in the manner that they won them, the first one, 100 points, never done before. The second one is part of an, a never-done-before domestic treble. And yet there is questions over whether Pep has been a success at, at Man City or not. It is, it is incredible how entitled we, all of us, and I, I don't excuse myself from this, we as football yep. fans have become. Uh, yeah, you do. I mean, they, they become accustomed to, to what they've they've seen. You know, and, and it's it, it's very hard. That's why I find Manchester United's predicament fascinating to kind of like, you know, voyeur at almost, is that they are, you know, kind of where we were in the late 90s now. You know, they're, they're in that position where they're kind of do they look back to try and move forward? You know, as the last league success is now what seven, seven years, years past mm-hmm. now, it's got to be eight by the time this season finishes. Um, the way that their season has begun, can we really think that they're going to win it this season? If they don't win it this season, then it'll be nine years at least, and then suddenly you're getting towards a decade. You know, you look at Arsenal; it's now been what sixteen years since they won yeah. the title. And as soon as you stop winning things, then it it becomes harder to get back onto that merry-go-round. Great believer in football evolution, just written an article for This Is Anfield about that very thing, is is that how teams that are at the top uh, evolve. And there's an artwork to it into, into spinning those plates and keeping a team at the top going uh you know it's that leap of faith and in, in saying well yeah we've just won these 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 massive trophies but we have to somehow alter you know it, it's it's the easy thing to stand still and say no this is working 
uh, you know, you have to you have to alter, you have to tinker, you have to evolve. That's not always a necessary in the basis of buying new players. Great believer in, you know, it can be a change of of system. It can be uh, the alteration of a player, you know, from one position to another. You know, uh, a midfielder who plays higher up, maybe asking him to play deeper, like Jordan Henderson has done before. Uh, we were looking at how well Fabino played uh, for Liverpool at Chelsea yesterday uh, at centre back. You know, the Liverpool have had track records before where centre central midfielders have, have slotted into central defence. Emily Hughes, Phil Thompson started as a central midfielder. Jamie Carragher started higher up the pitch. Jan Mulby was often seen as a, a natural to be playing at the back. So, you know, it, it, within that, there is these, you know, uh, systems of, of, of clubs and teams evolving, uh, you know, the introduction of youth, you know, it, it, evolution of a football team isn't always necessarily just a case of how many players you buy in a transfer window uh, that's where a team like Manchester United suddenly find themselves now looking at you know is every big signing being viewed as the, the last piece of the jigsaw you know this was what we used to say as Liverpool fans yeah. Paul last piece of the jigsaw yeah. but even when these players were being, you know, referred to as the last piece of the jigsaw. I remember the Manchester United, the 1980s, were, you know, Frank Stapleton, last piece of the jigsaw, Brian Robson, last piece of the jigsaw. Neil Webb was there would that. always be this, yeah, well, there would always be this annual last piece of the jigsaw mm-hmm. for football teams, the football teams who were chasing and just two or three steps away from the top, the top place. Um, and yeah, I, I, to say I, I find that. The, the, there's, it's flipped a few times now, you know, in my lifetime, that, that role reversal of how the Liverpool of the 80s became the, Liverpool, the Manchester United of the 1990s, the Manchester United of the 80s, you know, uh, you know the, the 90s was the Liverpool of the 80s, you know, and now it's started to turn the opposite way again. You know, suddenly Liverpool are back to what they used to do and Manchester United are back to where I knew them to be when I was a kid, you know. So it's, you know, there's, a, there's a, an absolute fascination in that way that teams you know, alter and change. And you can, you know, we do a series of podcasts, so we're putting together a series of podcasts for these football times called End of an Era um, at the minute for for release later in the year. And, and we discuss these eras of teams who, who were on top and how did they fall away and why did they fall away? And we try and, you know, spot the cracks and where they started to appear. And, and we've done Liverpool with Jeff Goulding, you know, post-1990. We've done Everton post-70 and, and all sorts of different teams. And, and there's always common denominators is that, uh, you know, teams stop, you know, that art of evolution. They they forget the art of evolution. They get to a point somewhere where they think, you know, this, this team we've got now is is never going to be any better. You know, we're going to do a Manchester United one soon on the post-Ferguson years, and we've already written down where, you know, it started to go, you know, because they kept the likes of Paul Scholes, Gary Neville, uh, far too long. You know, in previous eras, they'd have gone three or four years before they did, and and, and replacements would have been sourced and, and integrated into sides. Liverpool did it. Bob Paisley was a an absolute god for it. You know, he would get rid of players, and you'd think, these players going are at the peak of their game. You know, Jimmy Case, Ray Kennedy, you know, question Phil, you know, Terry McDermott, you know, question marks were raised on every single of these players being allowed to move on. But Paisley was by and large proved right because their replacements had already been absorbed within the side. And, you know, they then had the longevity to carry the club again for another five or six years. So it's, it's that concept of thinking two or three years ahead of themselves and then eventually what these managers do, and Ferguson was guilty of it as well, 
was that you know he he'll have seen his end game where he was going to check out of, of the yeah. job and, and then stopped thinking ahead and and it will be a subconscious thing it won't be a conscious thing at all it will be a subconscious you know movement of the brain it, you know it, it it starts to to narrow the picture narrows rather than looking at the bigger picture it's looking at the narrower picture and as soon as clubs start to look at the narrower picture and the quick fixes and the last that once that last piece of the jigsaw scenario kicks in then you know you've got a long road back and that's the thing like bob paisley always said let someone get old on somebody else's money don't pay them to get old on yours and Ferguson was guilty of that. And it always kind of seemed like when he when he brought Skulls back, held on to gigs, you, you mentioned Neville as well. It was almost yeah. more of a, a thing like, I can trust these guys. And I know that, you know, this season and next season, they can win me the league more than these two younger guys. And those two younger guys could, could win me the league in three, four and five years. But I'm not going to be here in three, four and five years. And like you say, it's probably not a conscious thing. But in the back of his head, that is most likely the thinking. You mentioned Manchester United. We, we talk about Manchester United. The, the Cup Winners' Cup is where Alex Ferguson cut his teeth. He, he wins it with Aberdeen, and it's an enormous achievement. He's, you know, Aberdeen, to that point, were not a team that you expected to do majorly well in Europe. He wins it with them in 83. That gets him you know, the high profile. Then he goes and he, you know, breaks the old firm, wins the wins the Scottish League with the confidence that had been gained the year before. And when he comes to Manchester United, the first major trophy he wins is the FA Cup. That kind of saves his job. And then he goes into the Cup Winners' Cup the next year and wins it. And that's what really cemented Alex Ferguson at Manchester United of, right, we have the right guy now. Now, we, we know he's going to win us things, so let's give him that little bit of extra time. Let's give him more more backing and more support. And it was, the Cup Winners' Cup was enormous for him and for Manchester United in becoming the dominant force we saw. Yeah, it happened for, for quite a few teams as well. Uh, you know, AC Milan won it in 68 and a year later they won the European Cup. So, mm. you know, yes, the, the Cup Winners' Cup could be, you know, something, not all the time, but there were certain instances where the Cup Winners' Cup acted as a as a springboard for, for a wider domination or bigger successes. Um, so yes, no, com- absolutely, completely, um, and that '91 Cup Winners' Cup was was massive for, for Ferguson and Manchester United. Um, the one that he won with Aberdeen, he'd already had some domestic successes. They won the title in I think 1980. So you know they, they'd done it the opposite way around. That that Cup yeah. Winners' Cup almost validated Ferguson's domestic success, whereas for Manchester United, yes, they won the FA Cup in 1990, but that Cup Winners' Cup success was the springboard to them going on to 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 win, you know, uh, so many things throughout the 1990s to to break that that uh, that drought of their own that uh, tends to get forgotten in some circumstances that they went what 26 years themselves without winning the league title. So you know these were all important steps forward, and and that Cup Winners' Cup was a, a huge springboard for them. And you look at you know, if, if you're listing the top clubs in world football right now in terms of, you know, sheer size and success, Barcelona and and Bayern Munich are going to be right at the very top of those lists. And Bayern's first success in Europe was the 67 um, Cup Winners' Cup. And they've since gone on to win six European Cups. Barcelona, 
had won three Cup Winners' Cups before they won their first European Cup. They went on and won a fourth um, Cup Winners' Cup, and they have five Champions Leagues now to their name. So it was a real stepping stone for even the biggest of clubs as we see them now. And you mentioned Milan as well. And look look how many you know European Cups they've won over the years. They've got five as well. No, they've got seven, do they? Seven, yeah. Seven. So, like, you know, this competition could be a real launch pad for teams to, you know, to get used to Europe, to find success in Europe, and then build on that and go and win, you know, be it the UEFA Cup, which would have been seen as slightly above this, maybe in, in terms of prestige, and then the European Cup, which is, of course, is, is the be-all and end-all. Yes, they did. You know, Ajax were another one. You know, they, they won the Cup Winners' Cup uh, in, in the late 1980s, uh, added the UEFA Cup in 92, and and then, you know, were winning the Champions League by 95. So, you know, it it was all a, a stepping stone. You know, some some teams won it, and, and it was simply just, you know, a, a bright flash in the pan. You know, uh, for but other clubs, it was yeah, it, it was hugely pivotal, hugely important for, for Barcelona. They were a team that was struggling domestically, a bit like Manchester United throughout the seventies and the eighties. Uh, they between sixty nineteen sixty and nineteen eighty five, when they won the league titles, they only won one other league title between those that that, that twenty five year span basically. Uh, so. Winning the the King's Cup, winning the Copa del Rey, going into the Cup Winners' Cup was was hugely important and and quite symbolic for them. You know, so for them to win it four times, you know, no team won the Cup Winners' Cup more than Barcelona did. But in an era, especially in an era before they won that first European Cup in '92, uh, the Cup Winners' Cup was just massively, massively important for Barcelona. And uh, and they were the Cup Winners' Cup in that that respect. They'd lost a couple of finals as well. You know, even towards the tail end, and, and the fact that that Bobby Robson side with Ronaldo and Figo in a, you know, they they won in '97. Uh, you know, it was a a fine side, and and you know, it, it, they just seemed to go hand in hand with that tournament throughout so many years. You know, there weren't many teams that you could fully associate to the Cup Winners' Cup. Yes, they won, the you know, teams would win it and the let played three successive finals in the, the mid to late 70s. But because of that random nature of domestic cup success, unlike teams that could win clusters of league titles, you know, clusters of domestic cups weren't didn't tend to be won. So this was what made this, you know, random handover this changeover of, of not just winners but the teams that participated year in year out you know you had you know defined regulars in the UEFA Cup you would have you know there would always be two or three big teams from each nation in the UEFA Cup and some of them you know year after year Tottenham seemed to qualify for the UEFA Cup year after year Manchester United would qualify apart from when they won the FA Cup and they'd be in the Cup Winners Cup instead uh, you know, there would always be two, at least two out of the three of the two Milans and, and Juventus in the, the UEFA Cup. So with that, you would tend to have regulars in the UEFA Cup. You would have semi-regulars in the European Cup. Uh, but the Cup Winners' Cup, it would be a different cast list virtually every year. No team ever retained the Cup Winners' Cup. Yeah. Seven, I think it was it was seven teams went back the following year. So they won it. They got back to the final the following year only to lose the final. But no team ever retained the Cup Winners' Cup. And and it was just it was like a snowstorm of a tournament. My favorite back to back 
team in terms of getting back to back to back finals and then building from there is Sampdoria, who lose the final in 89, come back and win it in 90, then win their first ever Serie A in 91, and then get to the Champions League or the European Cup final in 92. And that four year spell is the greatest four years in the history of that club in terms of success. And it all started with the Cup Winners' Cup. When you're researching this book, Stephen, is there a team, a player, a moment that stands out to you that you didn't know about and you're like, well, that's really interesting and then you're you're gone down a rabbit hole for a day or two? Oh, plenty of times. Plenty of times. You know, no matter what you think you know about football, you, there's always something that you don't know and something to learn. And there, there was... Know, all sorts of teams, you know, uh, it was great. You know, I always knew that Slovan Bratislava had won it, but you know, the the story behind them winning it, you know, uh, Czechoslovakia had been invaded that year by essentially the rest of the Eastern Bloc as led by the Soviet Union, uh, and and a lot of the so a lot of the, the Eastern Bloc countries withdrew the teams from the Cup Winners' Cup that year, but Czechoslovakian Football Association. Uh, which was splintered in itself because there was a Slovak side and the Czech side. Uh, there would be their own independent cups and then the two winners would play for the Czech Cup. Uh, so Slovan Bratislava kind of like saying, well, yes, you know, Czechoslovakia has been invaded, but you know what, we're going to go and win the Cup Winners' Cup and, and, and beat Barcelona in doing so. Uh, you know, just something utterly bewildering and brilliant about about a story like that. Uh, you've got MTK Budapest and, and playing... Uh, uh, sporting in, in the 64 final, for instance, that was you know the, the lowest attended European final of all time, less than 4,000 in attendance for that game. Yeah, it, it was a, an absolutely fantastic game that, uh, that ended 3-3, was propelled into a replay a few days later across the other side of Europe. Uh, still under 10,000 went to watch it, and, and it was uh, it was settled by a goal scored from, directly from a corner. You know, it, it was just these wonderful random uh, occurrences and the the whole nature of the tournament just uh, is so fascinating. It's funny to look back on some of the teams that won like in the later years, like say Real Saragossa, who everybody remembers that Naeem goal. I mean, the Naeem from the halfway line song that must have haunted David Seaman for the remainder of his career. And they're... They haven't been a La Liga team for a number of years now. They're, you know, they've had massive financial problems. They've been on the verge of collapse a couple of times. And yet they were a standout team in Europe. You look at um, Magdeburg, they're in the third division in Germany now. They Once the German reunification happened, they were never a force again. These wonderful teams that, you know, wouldn't be in your conscience now, but when you look back into a, a tournament like this, there they are proudly having won it and made their stand, made their name. Yeah, the the seventies in particular are littered with these teams. You know, you, you can you can bracket clubs like Bruges and uh, Saint Etienne and Borussia Mönchengladbach amongst these these teams. You know, uh, as as Western European contemporaries. They they rose to such prominence and had these teams that played some fantastic football with some iconic names involved, and uh, and and they either kind of like won 
the so-called lesser tournaments like the Cup Winners' Cup, or they they reached the latter stage of the European Cup and fell just short. You know, Saint-Étienne reached the 60-76 final at Hampden Park and and lost out to Bayern Munich in the square goalposts. You know, we beat Borussia Mönchengladbach in both the the 77 final, the 78 semi final. Uh, so yes, these these teams who who rose and and, and in contemporary terms are, are nothing more than either you know down the divisions or you know at, at best you know the the chasing Champions League qualification or you know uh, reaching the Europa League. So yeah, these these teams are you know for me. You know, they they were part of my childhood. So you know, if I'm watching or looking looking through flicking through results of of Lee, you know, League One, I'll be looking for Saint Etienne's result, for instance. You know, if I'm watching the Bundesliga, you know, massive soft spot for BMG because of those exploits of the 70s and because of being so closely associated to Liverpool. Um, but it's not just them. You know, Dinamo Tbilisi. You know, yes, they beat Liverpool, but it was that Cup Winners' Cup win for me that was so symbolic and hence they made the front cover of the book uh, and within that you know there's the tragic stories behind some of the players you know um, Vitaly Danicelia for instance who'd been such a star and scored you know a winning goal in that 81 Cup Winners Cup final that has so many hallmarks of Ricky Villa's winning goal the following night in the FA Cup final replay against Manchester City for Tottenham uh, yet it's something that's barely known about and uh, and he's there on the front cover and and probably one of the best parts about writing this book was that his daughter uh, came forward to, uh, on social media you know, to seek me out and, and to say thank you for this book and the fact that her dad's on the front cover because he died, you know, a year late, late 1982. Uh, tragic circumstances, car went off a you know a, a mountain road and uh, and into a river below, you know, only to be found virtually two weeks later on Boxing Day, you know, and, and 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 it's it's these very stark kind of tragedies as well that are associated to some of these teams, especially the, the Eastern European sides. Uh that as I the the just stories that that need to be told and, and, and need to be known. They do need to be known. And it, and we need to keep the history of the game alive. We can't afford for it to be forgotten or, you know, then it, it, you know, it, it would take away so much from what the game is now if we forget where the game came from. Uh, Frozen in Time, uh, the wonderful randomness of the European Cup Winners' Cup, uh, available from Amazon and, and wherever else you get your books. But the natural successor, the natural sequel to that, of course, is a book on the UEFA Cup, uh, the old format, the two-legged final, and where the cool kids hang out the chic years of the UEFA Cup. That's due out on the 12th of October. So give me a little bit of insight into that one. Uh, yeah, that, that was just a natural progression. You know, the, the Cup Winners' Cup ran from 1960 to 1999. Uh, the two-legged final year of the UEFA Cup, or the UEFA Cup, as, as commentators used to, used to call it, uh, ran from 71 to 97. So it, it fitted in quite nicely because it starts with a chapter on the Intercity's first cup, which was the tournament that uh, the UEFA Cup um, succeeded. So it, it kind of runs the same kind of time span as, as, as a tournament frozen in time. Uh, I go with that because that was when the UEFA Cup felt like the UEFA Cup. You know, once you strip away things like the two-legged final, 
uh, once group stages were introduced, the change of the name of the tournament, you know, it's a tournament that no longer feels like the UEFA Cup used to feel like. You know, I'll always say that the, the three the three major tournaments, as was, all had a distinctive personality of one another. Yes. And while there was a hierarchy, uh, you know, winning the UEFA Cup and the European Cup Winners' Cup wasn't a million miles behind you know, the the veracity of winning the European Cup. Mm. Whereas now, you know, it's the Champions League is full fat milk and the and the, the Europa League is semi-skimmed. You know, there's a defined line. You know, there's an uptown and downtown feel to the two major tournaments now. Whereas, you know, that wasn't the case back in the old currency. There were, you know, there was a sliding scale. And yes, the European Cup was the biggest one to win, but... You know, the shades between the tournaments weren't quite as stark as they are now. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you could have a, a domestic champion from from England, say, or from Spain, win the Cup Winners' Cup or the UEFA Cup, and a team that finishes third in Italy that season might win the European Cup. And the team that's won the UEFA or Cup Winners' Cup can realistically turn around and go well we won our domestic league and this and you finished third in your domestic league so whether you won that or not we we feel we're just as good as you if not better i think it did yeah. leave more for debate didn't it whereas now like you say i mean there are teams that actively try not to be in the europa league like a couple of years ago ac milan were warned against financial fair play you're about to commit the violation if you do you'll be banned from europe and their response was oh great and they went and spent a bunch more money and got themselves thrown out of the Europa League because they didn't want to be in it. Yeah, there is. It's almost like it's... Like it never would have happened with the old competitions. Yeah, yeah, very rare. There were a few instances in the early days of the UEFA Cup where, you know, Bobby Robson had had pondered pulling Ipswich out of uh, of a second-leg trip to to the Netherlands to take on Twant because... He wanted to concentrate his team had just gone to the top of the league and he, he was wanting, you know, no no distractions and that. But, you know, it was it was an idle threat. It was just a you know, an idle thought that he that he spoke out loud. It never actually happened. You know, he, they went and they contested and played a full strength side. So yes, you know, little little occurrences like that did happen, but not no one actively tried to get knocked out of the tournament. You know, once mm. they were in there, they were in there to win it. And, uh, and, and it was, it was, it was, it was a wonderful tournament that was, was rated as being the third of, of the tournaments. It was, it was the, you know, it was the youngest of the three. It was the, the lesser of the three in, in UEFA's ranking. Mm. Uh, but the strength of the lineup, that extra round in the winter, uh, you know, the, the runners and riders were always, Absolutely epic. And like you say, you know, some of the winners could be, you know, winning the domestic league that year. Liverpool, 1975-76 as an example. Uh, you know, they were headed to the title and won the UEFA Cup. They did so, they did exactly the same in 73. Uh, so, yes, you know, the the UEFA Cup, the teams that were in the UEFA Cup would often be riding high at that time domestically. So, you know, the there the really wouldn't be a huge amount between them. Um. I always have have had fond memories of uh, the UEFA Cup and, and the old format, and especially in the later years where, you know, you'd often you'd get, it happened with three different times with Italian clubs, where you'd get two different Italian clubs facing each other in the final, and they could also be competing for the league at the same time. 
And it was just this really interesting, you know, extra couple of games that were put into their schedules. And I just feel that we've gone backwards with European football. The Europa League is just not for me. Um, I, I, I miss the days of UEFA Cup on a Tuesday, European Cup on a Wednesday, and Cup Winners Cup on a Thursday. I think I think it was just so much better. It was, you know, something different every night. Like you said, each each of these com- uh, competitions had their own distinct personality, whereas now it's European Cup football Tuesday and Wednesday, and a lot of it is just the same. It's a lot of blah. And then on when yeah, on, on Thursday, it's it's like you know it's like leftovers. Yeah, well, what yeah, what you've got as well is that it's that closed shop elements as well. You know, of the thirty-two teams that were in the group stages of last year's Champions League, I think twenty-four of them were were you know herded in you know they didn't have to play any qualifiers to reach there was only eight places up for grabs for teams going through the qualifiers so you know it, it's that partition you know as as the political partitions came down the the footballing partitions came up you know very very swiftly you know but into the the mid 1990s you know teams could win the domestic title but they wouldn't guarantee them a shot at the at the European Cup slash Champions League for instance so you know the the rules changed, and it it was a case of shepherding away the 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 undesirables almost. Yeah, that's exactly it. it. It's it's moved more towards being a European Super League based largely around Western Europe teams, the the big five leagues, and the couple of other preferred leagues like you know the Eredivisie, the Portuguese Super League, whatever. They're the Eastern Bloc and and different teams that. There is a, a bit of a bias against them, um, and like you say, when when you're winning your 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 domestic title and you're not automatically guaranteed to be in the Europe European Cup the following year, there's just something gone wrong there. Um, so where the cool kids hang out is out October twelfth. Now it it is part two of the the trilogy, so there is going to be a book on the old European Cup. Yes, there is. Uh, it's due out next year, so I'm currently working on that one. Um, title, title as yet unknown, but a um, uh, work in progress it is, and it will be on the the European Cup as well. So, you know, the, there'll be an acknowledgement towards the Champions League era, but you know, it will be about when the European Cup was the European Cup. So, you know, no group stages, it, no no seeded. It was, you know, two legged football, and, and the trophy was was that much more aesthetically pleasing as well. Because of the European Cup, I mean, the thing for me is that you look at that version that Liverpool were handed in in Madrid, even the one that Liverpool got to keep after winning Istanbul. Uh, you know, the the fact that we always used to call it old big ears. You know, the the ears have been pinned back somewhat. Mm. You know, look it's at like, it's, look it's at the, the large, Gareth Bale version now, isn't it? Yeah, look, look at look at the large looping version that, that uh, AC Milan got to keep in two thousand and three. That's the version that you know I grew up watching. Graeme Souness. Phil Thompson, you know, Dennis Mortimer lift, uh, Derek McGovern, uh, you know, all of those sides, you know, that was the European Cup for me. And uh, and again, it's it's that it's that personality that I'll be going for. And, but yes, the, the European Cup is, is the next one. Up. Well, Stephen, I'll, I'm really looking forward to getting through this book and receiving the um, the cool kids when Amazon get round to releasing it and sending it to me. Uh, I will look forward to the book on the European Cup as well. 
Uh, your Twitter handle is at Scraggy underscore 74, S-C-R-A-G-G-Y underscore 74. Uh, your work is on This Is Anfield, These Football Times, and a couple of other places. I would highly recommend everybody to give Stephen a follow and check out his work. Thank you so much for your time today, Stephen. I've taken up a little bit too much of it, I feel. But uh, this, has <laughs> oh, been, yeah. this has been very enjoyable. Oh, I've had, I've had a ball there. Thanks for the invite and uh, a great way to spend an hour or so. That's exactly it. Thank you so much. I'll hopefully speak to you again sometime. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this. We're hoping to have a couple more like this. Um, if there's anyone you want, let us know, and we'll try and get hold of people. But uh, make sure you read these books. There, This is a walk down memory lane for people you know, my generation. And for people younger, it's a great way to learn about these competitions that maybe you're not familiar with. Thanks a million. See you next time. Podcast Network.